The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Of the Brand Peters Show and the continuing adventures of Customer of 82 at 40. A weekend by weekend look at the movies released during the summer of 1982. As always, for this journey from Forbes, it's Scott Mendelson. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to close out May with the weekend of the 28th through the 30th, the final weekend of May. Wrap it up huge. So we've got, we're completing a month here. This is crazy. This is a fun journey. I, I like going through a wild range of films. And granted, not all the things we're talking about have been wide releases, but it's neat to see that like we always like, oh my gosh, there's like 80 movies every weekend coming out. Well, pre-COVID, it felt like that. Uh, but there was always the case, it seems. There was always multiple movies coming out every weekend. Yes. Movies big and small. Uh, original and IP, which was still the case. I mean, you know, not to get on my soapbox, but Hollywood makes this stuff even now. It's just a question mm-hmm. of whether we, especially pre-COVID, take the initiative to go to theaters to actually watch them. Right. And if you're listening to this uh, Memorial Day weekend 2022, I can't believe Sonic the Hedgehog cameoed in Top Gun Maverick. I that was, was weird. not expecting that. That was weird. And it was right. Kill him off and not his own movie. I, I That surprised me. Yeah. It was when you know, Maverick flew through the ring to pick it up and Robotnik came in and ooh, it's a nice little crossover though. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I did enjoy the John, you know, the scene where Johnny Knoxville was Maverick's co-pilot. That was pretty cool. That was good. That was good. Good stuff there. I'm done with less Paw Patrol, but that's a general sentiment. Right. Right. <laughs> true. 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 Uh, this, this, on this episode here, uh, we're going to take a look at a uh, film from one of the folks behind Night of the Living Dead. Uh Raul Julia movie and uh, a William Shatner slasher movie and Rocky Balboa's defense of the title. But first, let's take a look at the news that happened this week. It's the news of the moment. I'm Leonard Malton, Entertainment Tonight. During this week, Iranian troops reconquered, I'm going to murder this word, Kora Mashar. Close enough. Yeah. New owners headed by John McMullen by NHL's Colorado Rockies and moved the team to New Jersey under the new name, New Jersey Devils. Leonard Malton made his first appearance on Entertainment Tonight this week. He was a regular, like, right before, like, you'd have seen Leonard Malton by now. If you watch TV, telling you about the movies coming up this weekend, what to see. The first papal visit to Britain since 1531 happened this week. And Spain became the 16th member of NATO during this week. Also, since it happens in the state I'm in, the city I live in, the Indianapolis 500, Gordon Johncock beats Rick Mears by 0.16 seconds, the closest finish in Indy 500 history at that point. Actor Alexa Davalos was born during this week. 
<laughs> so weak that was. I do remember, like you know, I read I, like I forgot. Oh yeah, Leonard Malton. That's how I, I how I think I knew who he was was his appearances on Entertainment Tonight because that last that stint lasted him a while, and his stuff. Um, he had packaged things too, where he would be sold to local news stations. So like he would shoot something just randomly, sell it to you know. There's a package, and they're like. Your local news would be like, oh, Leonard Malton's got our picks for this week. And they'd cut to a pre-recorded segment of him talking about the movies coming out that weekend. Uh, when I was growing up, it was, in terms of the mainstream critics, mm-hmm. it was Cisco and Ebert, obviously. Mm-hmm. It was Leonard Malton, and that was basically it. Mm-hmm. Unless you were knowledgeable enough to you know, know about Pauline Cal and, excuse me, Pauline Call and people of that ilk. There's a, uh, you know, Gene, Gene Shallot, right? Yes, I'm sorry, Gene Shallot. Yeah. Did we ever take him seriously? I don't remember. No, no. Because okay. I know Malton had his, his annual movie review book. It was this mm-hmm. big, you know, bathroom-friendly tome about this big and with a gajillion paragraph-sized movie reviews. And I know Roger Ebert's annual movie yearbook, I don't think that started coming out until the 90s, but his big thing was that, you know, he would reprint his full-length newspaper reviews. Mm-hmm. And that was a selling point back then that, you know, most movie guys that you would buy in a bookstore were, you know, par- you know paragraph size reviews. Right. Um, and probably yeah, just, an archive for their own personal records too. an easy yes. way to do that double duplicate thing. I might as well sell it while I'm binding these things up for my own personal because yes. they didn't, I don't, I doubt they saved a bunch of computers through all that time too. And, you know, even now Malton is one of the, he's still around. He's still, you know, active mm-hmm. and, Somewhat of a celebrity on the scene. Yeah. And, uh, well, there was a one time, Scott, uh, we went and saw the movie Wanted at the critic screening at the Chinese, and he sat by us and he got up a third of the way from in the, into the movie and never returned, but had a review posted the very next day. No comment other than we Secrets probably re- agreed trade. on that review. Yeah. <laughs> Secrets of the trade. Uh, he's probably like curving bullets. I've seen enough. <laughs> That was one of those movies you know, at the time. I, and I think this was your joke. I just stole it because you weren't writing at the time. Whereas like it was so derivative of other movies that it should have come with a works cited page. Right. Yeah. That was my, yes, that was my thing. And at the time, you know, haha, we're funny. You know, it, it wasn't a good film, but I, you know, I have to wonder 14 years later, you know, would I look upon a movie like that with fondness? And that right. It was just a ripoff of stuff that we knew instead of, you know, a soulless nostalgic cash in because mm-hmm. it's still, you know, a $75 million star driven R rated new to you adaptation that opened with $50 million in this, in June of 2008. Right. It you know, it's, a- it's frustrating that the industry has, as, as evolved, evolved to a point where, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I used to not have to be happy when films I hated did well. Right. Because, Hey, a movie, it's a movie and it's doing well. There's no, number on it there's no colon and something yeah. else like yeah uh they didn't just remove no. the the like no. oh, there yeah. was a time when i not would not have given a you know a golf clap to yesterday letting out to you know 50 or 60 million dollars because that movie is terrible but because it was an you know original non-franchise non-ip adult skewing like yay they can people still show up to those i wish they hadn't shown up to this one but yay people tend to show up to danny boyle films it's, it's an interesting thing like it's true we never That's talk about him job. as like the yeah we never talk about him being this marquee name director but like people show up to his movie so he 
while I don't think people go seeing it's a Danny Boyle film, he knows how to hit that spot with like a populist to at least get some good earnings back on. Well, his I think also something like you know twenty seven hours, one hundred twenty eight hours, um, which is very good by the I way. I think it was one hundred twenty seven hours, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. Where, okay? We found the number. Um, and you know that it was a cheap enough film that it didn't have to break records to break even. Mm-hmm. It simply was a participant in the Oscar race that year, and that was enough to give it, you know, to get people to show up. Right. You know, that was was that 2010? Might have been 2010. Because that was a year. Let's assume it was, and if I'm wrong, someone will correct us on Twitter. Uh, you know, that was a year when you know Black Swan made a hundred million dollars. No one will correct us because it was 2010. Excellent. You know, Black Swan made a hundred million dollars. Uh, you know, the fighter made 93 domestic. Yeah. You know, True Grit and Tron made the same amount of money domestically in December 2010. They both made about $170 million. There was just, you know, and again, not to, you know, to do the same cliche as that, you know, the audience, there was an audience, a vibrant audience that would see the event films, but they would also see other stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, they would go to a movie just to go to a movie. They would either not see the event films or they would see the event films and something else. Right. And that audience is now bye-bye. Yeah. They, well, it was also in the slow climb of, of Netflix. Like, yes, that was starting there. It begins at the, like 2009, 2008. And then by the end of, by we're 2015, here. 2015, yeah. bam, almost mm-hmm. overnight. Yeah. You know, the, the transition occurs and studio programmers are dead in water. Yep. And now you can only get so many people to s- subscribe. Like, let's say I didn't warn them. Probably joining the pro life crowd so they can have more subscribers in the future. That's probably what they're I, doing. I've been doing the whole Bruce Willis and Die Hard 2 waving the fire torches thing for like six years. Yep. No, there's no landing lights. You're going to crash. Exactly. No, exactly. Exactly, yeah. Mr. Falcon. Yeah. Uh, speaking of crashing, uh, our first film, Midnight. No, the hour of horror approaches and the terror begins at midnight. Midnight, when the dead drink the blood of the living. Midnight, by the co-author of Night of the Living Dead. Now don't miss John Russo's Midnight. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. If you have a weak stomach, don't come. It's uh, it's directed by John Russo, the writer of the original Night of the Living Dead. I saw him once at a convention. He looked kind of grumpy, but it's all good. (laughs) It's based on a novel he wrote, and it stars Melanie Verlin and Lawrence Tierney. It's about a young woman fleeing her sexually abusive stepfather. She hitches a ride with two young men, but the three soon find themselves at the mercy of a backwoods satanic cult. Uh, This movie was labeled a video nasty in the UK. It was shot a few years uh, before this. Um, It was released before it was released. So it had been sitting there. It was had special effects by Tom Savini. The film he chose to do over doing Friday the 13th Part 2. I would love to know. And again, I say this without judgment. I would love to know his thinking behind that decision. Yeah. Well, they're friends. Uh, it's a Pittsburgh film. It's a Pittsburgh film. Russo was on the crew of, you know, Night of the Living Dead, George Romero, 
Savini and Romero friend. Like he, Savini hung around the Pittsburgh area, did films with them. So I, I see him just like, ah, I'm going to work on a film with my buddy because he probably made the decision before Friday one was a big hit. That's so, true. I don't know what the timeline in terms of that does make sense. Yeah. As for the movie, it's, it's all due respect. It's garbage. Um, it's really it, bad garbage. Yeah. It is, you know, and they'll even, you know, I mean, the trivia of Wikipedia, whatever section, you know, they shot it with very low quality film, a three person crew. Yeah. And when you watch the film, they chose the takes that were best developed, not the ones that were the best takes. Yeah. And you can tell, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 it's grody and not in a cool Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of way. No, this one definitely wants to be Texas Chainsaw. It does also feel like three completely different movies. Yes. Together. And the, the sexually abusive stepfather somehow winding up hero. Oh, yeah. this thing you does know, it, not feel good. It's like he's bad, but they're worse. Yeah, that kind of works in a in an action movie, but not when he's a he's a well. The scenes file. they show with of him yeah. are like somebody kill him. Yeah, it's like it's not subtle. Yeah, it's bad. Um, uh, women get put cage. There's like a satanic cult that you see at the beginning, and then doesn't show up till later, and then feels like it has nothing to do with anything else. Which again, if the There's, movie were better made and more compelling, you know, whatever, it's a horror film. Why yeah. kiss it? But you know, my thing is always if you're going to include content like that, at least make a good movie. Mm-hmm. And you know, the the actors are not good. The makeup and special effects are not particularly compelling. I can't respect. really see it much. We watched no. a, a a I think a VHS rip of it. It is available on Blu-ray from Severin Films, but I was not ponying up that. <laughs> no. It's a curiosity yeah. in the sense that, you know, oh, it's a video nasty. That's nice. My favorite um, part was, I think that's the cemetery from Night of the Living Dead. I think this is the road they're driving on in Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> that's like my favorite. That might be the farmhouse from Night of the Living Dead. Like, I, those are my favorite parts of the movie. Like, I really struggle. And the two guys, this girl gets picked up by two assholes. Like, it, yeah. You know, she really goes from, you know, from one into the fire from out of the fire into the frying pan then out of that frying pan into another frying pan mm-hmm. and then another frying pan yeah it becomes self-satirical after a while though right. it's not supposed to be and it, it's funny you know it's it's you know involved involved with Lion of the dead that is a you know it just show, sort of shows you to a certain extent how much talent matters yeah because that is a polished i mean i don't know what the budget was on Night of the living dead i don't i'm not a, an expert on the making of that picture but that is a film that looks professional yeah, and looks accomplished and is filled with good performances and strong staging and compelling cinematography and all the things that, you know, take for granted, I guess, movie making. Mm-hmm. But and I can't imagine it was that much more expensive than something mm-hmm. like this. They So like after Night of the Living Dead, like Russo and like Romero, like they, the, the people they made through the seventies before Dawn of the Dead, they made a lot of cheaper cheap films. Still, that's how they, they were building up their resumes. They made a movie called Season of the Witch and Martin and a couple others, and they're all cheap movies, but they look better. Like Romero was the guy who had the talent in in the yeah. in the group, and then there was a evil a nasty split of him and Russo about Night of the Living Dead rights and stuff, and. Romero went on to be a prolific horror director, beloved, like a lot of memorable films. Russo went on to allow his rights to go to other people and stuff. Like uh, we have Return of the Living Dead, that series 
is because he that he lucked out on because Dan O'Bannon took that up. He made a cult classic comedy zombie movie, which is awesome. Uh, that spawned a series. But Russo's name always could have the from the creator of Night of the Living Dead, which he was one of them, or from the people who brought you Night of the Living Dead. He could do that. But his own personal projects, nah, not much. Watching it, and this is a reference that might make no sense, you know, when people actually watch this in May. So mm-hmm. it's funny. So Google, when you get a chance, Ethan Cohen reviews the tragedy of Macbeth. Okay. It's, uh, someone wrote a, a fake review of Ethan Cohen reviewing Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth. Mm. And it's, it's obviously it's a piss take. Yeah. But it's very, very funny. And watching this picture, it kind of reminded me of like, if Romero actually reviewed this movie, that's probably what it would read like. Right. Yeah, this, I, is what, this is what you do when you don't have me to save your ass. I have that 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 uh, piece doggy eared because I still haven't yeah, got to Macbeth yet. I'm, I'm overly trying to make my settings and time for it ridiculous. I'm a big Coen Brothers fan, and if I can't get in to the, in the theater here and I'm watching at home, I want the best. I don't want to be tired. I don't want the kids to be rowdy. I want to enjoy that movie because I'm a big Coen Brothers fan. Yeah, it's it's good. So uh, I was I was fortunate to be able to see it at a impressor. So yeah, watch the movie, then read the review. Right. Although I mean, it's Macbeth. There are no spoilers. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Sorry, it's that Scottish movie. There are no spoilers. There are no spoilers. Um, Midnight. Just oh, there's racist cops in it too. That, yeah. Yeah. Sort of the, the West Craven School of Incompetent Law Enforcement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Th- um, this. Oof. Yeah, it's not a good picture. Not a good movie. Not a good one. Yes, may I help you? I'd like to see the city editor, please. I have a story for him. What about? I'd, I'd like to tell it myself. Hello, Danny. <laughs> hey, Uncle Burke, pick a card. Just because you can do a couple of tricks doesn't mean you got a mad kid. The world is full of guys that can pick up a deck and put it down without spilling it. What's your next step, kid? The next step's up. I'm going up. He's the mayor's son. You can tell his guy's been in and out of the nut house. Where's the wallet, kid? I don't know what you're referring to. You heisted my wallet. i tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to have a little uh, employment insurance interview here. How do you feel about breaking the law? Which law? We got a little Lord Funtleroy here, and the spectacle is disgusting. My old man's a crook. That money is hot. And if you try to spend any of it, I'll kill you. Understand that? You know what you're doing is really dangerous. You could get hurt. Don't use my own jokes on me, kid. I haven't heard of an escape artist since before the days of flagpole centers. Here's the card you picked. (laughs) The old card in the wallet trick. The old card in your wallet trick. 
Moving on to our, our second feature here is The Escape Artist, which is directed by Caleb Deschanel. His first film as a director, he was a very known cinematographer. Yes, he's the father of Zoe and Emily Deschanel, who both have had hit series on the channel Fox mm-hmm. in the comedy and drama genres. It's written by Melissa Matheson and Steven Zito, based on a novel by David Wagner. Stars Raul Julia. Terry Garr, Griffin O'Neill, M. Emmett Walsh, E.G. Daly, Joan Hackett, Harry Anderson, and Desi Arnaz in his final role. And it's the only time he's ever credited as Desidero. It's about the young and self-confident Danny who bluffs at a local police station that he will escape out of prison within one hour. What follows is a flashback about his childhood with his uncle and aunt, which are vaudeville artists themselves. We also follow the problems of Danny with the corrupt son of the mayor. Watching this one, there's this weird thing that comes with the 1970s that's still hung over here in early 82, where there are movies, feature films that look and play like TV movies. And this is one of them. Like, yeah. this would have been a probably a average Sunday night movie. It's a theatrical release. It's This isn't. And I feel bad, like Caleb Deschanel, he's known for like good cinematography and stuff, but like, this ain't it. I will say the joy of this one comes from uh, the fact that Raul Julia is just an actor you love seeing someone say action and then just watching him go to work. Like, he's one of the best there ever was. I, I don't think people really appreciated him fully until after he was gone. A lot of people were introduced to him as Gomez Adams and had a little bit of fun with him through the 90s. But going back and look at everything he, he touches, it's just like, man, like I was gold and too gone too soon. Uh, but this one, he's kind of a he's a jerk. He plays the son of the mayor. His father in the movie is uh, Desi Arnaz, that Desi Arnaz. And um, he's using this little kid who knows stuff about escape artistry and stuff. And you think the movie would be about magicians escape. And it is really not. It's about this drama with that. And I just found myself tired with this one. There's some good, like Julia's great. Seeing all the faces in here are like, is awesome. This is Harry Anderson's first movie. And it's neat that it's a escape artist, magician related movie, but uh, I want it to be more about, it's called the escape artist. And I wanted to be more scenarios with that rather than it based around a book ended one. And then some light touches of talking about escape artistry. It was shot in 1980, so another one that got held over and uh, released in 1982. So it's like they're kind of dumping some counter-programming here. Like, what, what do you got on the shelf, Phil? I got the escapers. Who's in that? Uh, Desi Ardez. From Lucy? Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll put it against Rocky. I know when you're a cinematographer, you take whatever, you know, you take the offers that you're given and there's not always a, even if it's transcendence, you know, continuity, yeah. but you know, the guy, and a lot of these are gorgeous movies, you know, Passion to the Christ, National Treasure, yeah. the, the live action Lion King, the first and best Jack Reacher movie. Right. I mean, this, you know, he's got a fascinating filmography in terms of the eclectic kind of films that he shot. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's. That's unfortunately what I have to contribute to the conversation. Other than the Raul Julia thing, I mean, you know, as you know, he had a stroke and he basically was hauled into the ambulance, clutching the script, the Desperado. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his role eventually went to Joaquin Almeida. 
I think by weird fluke of generational whatever, you know, he, he certainly is kept alive in the fact that, you know, literally two years before he died, he made two pictures, the Adams family and Street Fighter, the movie mm-hmm. that have become beloved generational nostalgic classics to the kids that are now the adults in the room. Right. And say what you will about Street Fighter and, you know, He's terrific in that picture. No, he's great. Like I don't, it, it, people are like, oh, it's so sad. That was his last movie. I'm like, I don't think he would have thought so. No, I, I, he, I don't know whether he knew that he was ill, and that's not my place necessarily. But he certainly, you know, it's a wonderfully pitch perfect spoof of the very specific kind of scene stealing villainy that we saw on the regular between like Die Hard and uh, I'm trying to think when the last ones of those were. I mean you know, Blade maybe, Mask of Zorro. Mm-hmm. I, where you have this big star that just steals the entire movie out from the, the, the leading man and just hams it up like there's no tomorrow. Right. Uh, maybe Sean Connery's The Avengers kind of put, nipped that in the bud for a while. People would argue Batman. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, That's all I've got on that one. Yeah. it's. I don't think it's some gem to, to seek out unless you just want to watch Raul Julia play, then... That would be the reason to check out the escape bars. This was one I that that was one this week. I was like, "Ooh, that that could be pretty good." I'm looking forward to that. And alas, didn't 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 work out for me. Tuesday, all hands on deck for Bob Hope's All Star Birthday Party in Annapolis. Then relive TV's most memorable seconds. I can't believe I ate that all thing. See the TV ads you weren't supposed to see again on television's greatest commercials after Bob Hope's All Star Birthday Party Tuesday. Speaking of something that looks like a TV movie, let's see what was going on in TV Land this week of the top ten uh, Nielsen rated nice shows. Segue. Yes, so the number one watched program. In America, this weekend, this week in 1982 was TV's greatest commercials on NBC. That was underwhelming. Number two, Paper Dolls on ABC. Number three, Give Me a Break on NBC. Number four, The Legend Walks Far. The Legend Walks Far Woman on NBC. It's a real thing. I, lo- I had to look it up. I'm like, was that correct? Like it was. <laughs> Uh, number five, Bob Hope's birthday on NBC. Number six, different strokes on NBC. 2020 comes in at number seven on ABC. Too close for comfort finishes eight this week on ABC. Hill Street Blues. We got a number nine. That oh, one jumps in on NBC. I've been waiting for Hill Street Blues to show up. Yep. And number 10, the facts of life on NBC. NBC just dominates this week here. But I'll tell you something you never imagine hearing today. CBS with zero shows in the top 10. Yeah. They, they, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh I was like, so NBC had like was eight Brian, of the 10 was spots. Was Brandon Tarkoff at NBC yet? Yeah, I think that, yeah. No, no, he was because here's a fun fact. My name, I'm born in 82 this very year. My mother selected my name because of Brandon Tartikoff. Really? She liked I that name. I have no idea. That's where it came from. I didn't from. that to you. Nope. <laughs> no, she bump, set, spike. But no, that's where that's where my name came from uh, because if I was going to be a girl, it was going to be Brooke. And then they found out I was going to be a boy. And uh, she didn't know. And then they were like, NBC. So he must, I think he was very recently the president of NBC and didn't hear that name quite often. And I, that's where my name originates, was Brandon Tartikoff from NBC. Yeah, he passed away, jeez, 25 years ago. Yeah. Long yeah. time ago. So I was, uh, yeah, 
15 at the time, he was like, son, time to take the Brandon torch. Go forth, do your thing, and create a podcast when you're older and talk about me. <laughs> when you're reflecting on 40 years on one of my he died terms. at 48. Jesus. Oof, gosh. I did not know this. I mean, I, I, anyway, whatever. May I surpass that age? <laughs> but yeah, that's the that's week of TV. Yeah, I like seeing Hill Street Blues in there and Facts of Life. I didn't realize. I remember Facts of Life popular, but top 10 show. So, yeah, not something I realized. But I mean, you could, I mean, even back then, like we talked the top 10 here, but back then being probably in the top 30 was great. Like, because ratings were just now, do they even matter? How much do they matter? matter? Yeah. Oh, that's, you know, again, not to get it on a soapbox again, because I'm trying not to do that on every episode. Yeah. But yeah, if ratings don't matter and box office doesn't matter and, and hard transactional VOD and physical media doesn't matter, then what is it all just about what trends on Twitter? Yeah, which isn't real. That's not much of people. It's a small, small yeah. percentage. Because it's funny because there's t- the toxic fandoms love to point to numbers and all sorts of things. But like with TV shows and stuff, they're like, oh, look, it's, like I, I'm being a Doctor Who fan, and the BBC still that that show still has the old mold of it's on television, it has ratings overnights. Those are important to the BBC, and the ratings are small. But like the show still finishes in like the top ten and stuff. But all the ratings are down. Like yeah. every show is down. Like its numbers are minuscule, but everything has like streaming has really started to hit over in the UK, and the numbers are reflecting. But they're like, look, it's the lowest rated in the history of like, no, but like everything's low rated. Look where it's finishing. It's still finishing anywhere in the top 10 to 20. And that's for programming yeah, throughout I mean, a week. I remember in, in, you know, in May of 99, NBC finally, not finally, I mean, it's a great show, but they canceled Homicide after yeah. seven, frankly, lowly rated seasons. And I think it was doing like 10 million and out, you know, 10 million a week at that point. And that mm-hmm. was at that point, especially because it's been on so long and, you know, people want raises, yada, yada, yada. It was, you know, time to cut the cord. And ironically, the show they replaced it with didn't even last a season. Yeah. Well, I don't like, remember uh, the name of the show. They replaced it. <laughs> I believe uh, that was like uh, CW uh, when they replaced uh, Veronica Mars with Reaper and that. Yeah. Oh, no, that went two no, really no. low rated seasons. Yes. Really low. Were, the thing that allegedly killed Veronica Mars was the Pussycat Dolls. It was a reality show of some kind. Oh, yeah. The Pussycat Dolls. And I think, and please don't, you know, it was a matter of, you know, it was either that or Everwood. And yeah. Everwood got the, uh, the stay of execution. Yeah. And to be fair, it was able to, it ran for four seasons, ended on its own terms, and right. yippee skippy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I remember when things got canceled, we got angry, but then we moved on. We found yeah. new. And there was there was no and you know it, it's again I, I I mourned Veronica Mars at the time, but like look they let it go for, you know plenty of shows like Arrested Development, Hannibal, yeah, Veronica Mars. You know at some point you know it's not a matter of oh the, the network canceled this too early. It's a matter of they let it run for three years despite nobody watching it. Yeah, you know thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like like Firefly back in the day. That was a yeah. mishandled show. They okay, we'll give it a movie. The movie broke even. Yeah. And it was like, well, that's probably the best we're gonna get here. You know? Just dooming Josh Wheaton to end his days in uh what's the term? Exile and uh 
cult fandom and I'm missing a word that's on top of my tongue mm-hmm. until they got a call from Kevin Feige to put him back on the top of the pop culture mountain. Yeah. I, I like that nobody regretted. The thing that lacks in the terms of like fandom side of things with pop culture and media is they never bother once to learn the business angle of it all. It's told to be the yes. enemy, but once I always preach this on the show, once you learn that, it all makes sense and you don't get as mad and you understand decisions. You get mad at bad decisions still, but like, yeah, they, and you realize it's all made up. <laughs> like, yeah, but to a certain extent, and it's 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 a part of it. It does, it does annoy me the extent that the discourse has become so fan driven, and so yeah. some people in some outlets, you know, again, you want you know, why didn't this do film do well at the box office? It's not a secret it's because people don't see films like that anymore. Yeah, you know, why did Widow's bomb? It wasn't because it was badly marketed. It's because people don't show up for that kind of movie. They should. Yeah. They don't. Yeah, it's a really good movie too. Yeah. Yeah. That was I, even I had faith in that one up to the you know, if anything, the trailer was too good. It looked really intense. Yeah. I'm sure there's probably people that thought that's not looked like a fun time. But it was. It was a beautiful time. It was. Yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, but yeah, I, what uh, some people thought was a th- some fun time during this week was visiting hours. Did they? Yes. Um, well, well, when we get to the box office report, uh, <laughs> I shall be proven right. In this hospital, your next visit may be your last. All visitors, please leave the hospital. <laughs> Dr. Len. Visiting hours so frightening you may never recover. Starring Lee Grant, William Shatner, Linda Pearl. Directed by Jean-Claude Lord, written by Brian Taggart, who you might know wrote V, The Final Battle, Poltergeist 3, Of Unknown Origin, The Omen 4, Trucks, all your classic sequels that people... Wow. Trucks, which was the maximum overdrive made-for-TV sequel. Stars Lee Grant, William Shatner, Michael Ironside, Linda Pearl, and Lenore Zahn. Uh, Lenore Zahn was the voice of Rogue on the X Men cartoon, which is kind of nifty. Oh, uh, didn't know she's the she plays the curly haired girl that fancies Michael Ironside in a scene. Um, <laughs> the movie's about a deranged, misogynistic killer who assaults a journalist. When he discovers that she survived the attack, he follows her to the hospital to finish her off during visiting hours. That, that, that was I added. Kind of goes off the. It's not quite a stream a straight line as that. As I, you know, that's not, yeah. uh, to my surprise. Right. <laughs> this is also this is our second I'm dying. I just had too much coke in the wrong way. Keep All going. good. Co- the, the drink. <laughs> For our audio listeners, the, the soda drink, not not the powder. Pepsi. Cherry Pepsi. Is that cherry Pepsi or Pepsi Pepsi? Uh, 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 cherry Pepsi uh, zero sugar. Not not a sponsor. But this it is can a, be. I can a, use the freeze cans. <laughs> Another video nasty uh, this week, and uh, this one actually it aired on ITV in 1989, and they got a big old fine for it. It's another Canadian slasher in the vein of My Bloody Valentine, Curtains, Happy Birthday to Me, and uh, this is Michael Ironside's big get after Scanners broke him out. Okay, so this this slasher feels like someone was like, "All right, we're gonna make one for the adults." Yeah, we're gonna put some known people in it. And we are going to make it for the adult. We're, we're, you know, this this is a fad, but let's make one for the older kids to show show it how it's done when it's classy. 
and it ends up being just as schlocky, if not more, than others. With like Lee Grant, who Lee Grant's someone I think time has passed. Like she was a big star, like a lot of TV stuff, everything. But like she was a known person. If you watch a lot of classic films, classic television, you know who Lee Grant is. But I'm like, oh well, she never starred in a like star trek or you know star wars marvel thing like she never was in those projects and those aren't the ones people go back and revisit but i i know her i know like i always shows up like oh but this is probably one of those fandom things or the closest thing she did she was in columbo she did that but i don't think the kids go back and watch columbo they should it's pretty good stuff spielberg spielberg directed columbo but she's here she's our final girl person shatner's here looks like he had free time to shoot some scenes here and there. I but think he wanted to play the killer, but he lost out yeah. to Michael Ironside. He's pretty fun here. He, he's yeah. eating in seeds and um, he's not, he's not, it doesn't feel like he's like, well, I'm here for a check. He, he looks like he's enjoying himself. Linda Pearl is a bit of a halvesies final girl-esque lead type person. But I don't know. What'd you think of this one, Scott? More interesting than good. And, you know, I know that's been a pattern for a number of these pictures. You're absolutely right in the sense that it does feel like a prototypical early 80s slasher that's aimed at your parents, mm-hmm. <laughs> people that would otherwise turn their nose and, oh, you're watching a, you know, a Halloween movie or a Friday their Teeth movie. Oh, your babysitter's coming. We're going to the movies. We're going to see Visiting Hours, the thriller with the, you know, the guy from DJ Hooker. Yep. <laughs> um, and it's a serious picture, which, yeah. you know. It's bad. It's narratively overly complicated. You know, without mm-hmm. going into details, the murderer seems to make like a figure eight in terms of who he's talking at any given time. Right. You know, there is a scene early on where two bystander nurses are murdered right in front of one of our main characters who seems to not be all that bothered by that. Yeah. <laughs> she takes that pretty well. The film is violent. It is, you know, pretty on the nose in terms of both on-screen violence, explicit sexual motivations for the murderer. There's like a rapish scene oh, yeah, in it too, it's, yeah. It's, no, they're not, there's no metaphor here. Yeah. He's a misogynistic asshole that likes, wants to kill women because he doesn't like women. And he writes and, angry anti-Semitic letters to yes. things and puts them uh, on his wall. And in that sense, it's nice that, again, it doesn't hide behind metaphor. Yeah. You know, where it doesn't have, you know, it's, 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 you know, for as many serial killer movies as we got, even before Sons and Lambs, because, you know, we did see a few here and there, mm-hmm. there were very few that just were out and out said, you know, he's white trash that hates women, and that's why he does it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I don't think Kiss the Girls is great cinema, but I do like that it doesn't shy away from that very realistic motivation. Right. And that even a guy that, spoiler, looked like Gary Elwells can still be a misogynistic incel troll. Yes. But yeah, as a movie, it's it's boilerplate bargain basements. You know, the the production design of the hospital looks fine. Again, you know, I, I accidentally mentioned this while talking about the other movie, but yeah, it was shot around the same time as Halloween 2. Yeah. And there are certain similarities, intentional or not. And I think other than as you notice the as you noted the idea that it's sort of a, a slasher film. A dead teenager movie without teenagers, right? Um, and it's William Shatner in a non-Star Trek role. You know, it's it's pretty disposable. Yeah, and they they added one to the pile rather than putting one on top of it. Like you know, they just 
this is what it seems to aim to be, which is it's a fascinating curiosity, like William Shatner in a slasher movie. I would say Lee Grant in a slasher movie, but she probably did a lot of TV movies that were topics like this, just not as vicious and gruesome, potentially. Uh, Linda Pearl surprised me in it like she's so young and then she comes home and has a child. And I'm like, oh, okay. Character's a little bit more fleshed out than I thought would be. But yeah, it's it's weird, like, they constantly back forth on the hospital. Michael Ironsense, it's a it's a weird character because he's wearing all this like leatherish stuff. Like what's he's into something. There's the the whole sequence with the girl with the curly hair that survives one of his attacks that he rapes or whatever. He's um, not good at killing people. Yeah. She like yeah. is into him, and I'm like, how like he's sitting there, he looks just haggard, grotesque, and stuff sitting in a diner, and she's all like, Ooh, look at this guy. Like he doesn't even look like a bad boy. He looks like he's going to kill you yeah. if you walk down the wrong alley with him. Like they, they maybe went a bit too much over the top with him. There is a, I do like for a slash movie when Lee Grant is attacked in her home. I think that's pretty well done. Like, cause it's a whole lot of how is she going to get out of this, but they do add the typical LA thing of like, help me. It's like, Oh, don't listen to that drunk. Uh, I agree. We're not going to help her, but yeah, there's a, there's some cool <laughs> stuff in there. And you mentioned Halloween too. There's the pulley system thing that like Halloween H2O ends up using in, in that one too. So there's, <laughs> there's that, but yeah, uh, visiting hours, it uh, has always come on Blu-ray and DVD packed with a movie called mm-hmm. bad dreams, which is really interesting. Uh, it's a kind of a Freddy knockoff with Jennifer Rubin and uh, what's his name? Richard Lynch. Richard Lynch. That is it. Richard Lynch. And E.G. Daly was in that movie too. Or no, she was. <laughs> she was. She was not in this movie. She was in the. Oh, she was in the Escape Artist that we talked about yes. a second ago. But yeah, so visiting hours. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it, of the three films we've talked so far, I would say this one is the one to watch. But we're gonna get to by it. default. Another one by default. Now here's Casey Kasem. Thank you, Charlie Tuna, and hello again, everybody. Welcome to America's Top Ten. Let's turn right to the action on Billboard's Pop Singles Chart and check out the ten biggest hits this week. So now moving on, what was in the Casey Kasem Top Ten of the Top Forty this week? See what moved around here. I want. I'm going to note. Sniffing the top 10 here is Asia's Heat of the Moment. I'd be excited when that one jumps in. Uh, number 10, Get Down On It, Coolin' the Gang. Staying at number 10. Staying at number 9, Did It in a Minute, Hall and Oates. Moving up from number 11, Always On My Mind by Willie Nelson. Moving up one spot, Do, Don't You Want Me by The Human League. They're getting there. They're climbing the charts. At number 6 again is The 65 Love Affair by Paul Davis. Staying at number five, The Other Woman by Ray Parker Jr. Number four, again, is 8675309 Jenny by Tommy Tutone. Again, number three, we have no movement in the top five. I've never been to me, Sharp by Charlene Duncan. Number two, Don't Talk to Strangers, Rick Springfield and Ebony and Ivory for the third week straight by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. I hope that does not take over the whole summer. I'd like to see some movement of songs. Hence why I added Asia's Heat of the Moment sitting there at number 11, hopefully jumping in the top 10. Vangelis is out, as we had mentioned. They hit number one. It dropped fast. Well, if this podcast goes well and you want to do a sequel, I heartily suggest doing, and I might write about this if nobody otherwise, the uh, first 15 or so weekends of 1998. Oh, okay. Anyway. 
that. Mm. Oh yeah, that was yeah. We will start. <laughs> what was it? What was the song that uh, I did? So a few weeks back, a while back, I did. Oh, Savage Gardens. Truly, madly, deeply was the last number one song before that took off. <laughs> I believe we did the music video for that. I was at or it was either the song that knocked it out or the song that was the last number one song before that took off. I think it's the last number one song before that took off or something like that. Because it has like a record for not staying at number one, but like staying on the charts forever. Oh. Uh, yeah. This guy is a wrecking machine. Now, it's time for Rocky to face the challenge of his life. For the first time in my life, I'm afraid. It's time for new allies, new enemies, new dreams, new tears, new danger, new courage, new love, new excitement. It's time for Rocky Three, rated PG. Now playing at specially selected theaters. Rocky Three is our big movie of the weekend and probably the month for yes. for May. Directed by Sylvester Stallone, written by Sylvester Stallone, starring Sylvester Stallone, Talia Shire, Burt Young, Burgess Meredith, Carl Weathers, Tony Burton, Mr. T, and Hulk Hogan as Thunderlips. In this one, Rocky faces the ultimate challenge from a powerful new contender and must turn to a former rival to help regain his throne as the undisputed fighting champion with the eye of the tiger. So here we are with Rocky three, the movie that is an odd space where it's a movie that's about exactly what it is. It's, it's weird. It's, (laughs) it's kind of an amazing thing because this movie is about Rocky being Larger than life now, in excess, overdone, going through trials, tribulations, and like that's what this movie is with the Rocky yes. franchise from one and two. One was a, it's a great film. Two is pretty damn good and close to what number one is. Like it stays in that wheelhouse. It doesn't force status quo on Rocky. It just shows that everybody went home and you have this huge memory life that you want to hang out. Life unfortunately went on and yeah. that's part of the genius of Rocky two. And here we are with Rocky three and this is jumping. Rocky three is the one where it's sort of, I would argue Rocky three. When you think of the franchise, not necessarily, you know, what's your favorite Rocky movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. When you think of the franchise to me, Rocky three is the definitive Rocky picture in yeah. that it is, it's a certainly a more modest balance between realism and fantasy than either the first two Rocky films, which are straight dramas and Rocky four, which is a cartoon, you know, that's neither, you know, I like, I'm quite fond of Rocky four. It's no secret, but it is a, it is a cartoon. It's a 90 minute music video with a few dialogue scenes. Well, It's this Um, movie, but like what, what kind of fat can we trim and just have all the action? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's a shorter picture than the first two, I think. And it feels larger than life. The production value is increased. I mean, it feels like it's shot Mm -hmm. in a fancier stock of film, even. And you're right. And the fact that it does reflect both the protagonist and the actor, you know, Sylvester Stallone had gone from this, you know, hard scrabble starring in porn films to pay the rent, 
held out so he could write star and write his own movie rather than taking the bigger paycheck for the mm-hmm. first Rocky. And of course, you know, he bet on himself and it paid off in spades. But pretty much every movie he made other than Rocky, with one exception, which I'll get to in a second, was a flop. You know, yeah. Victory was a flop. Nighthawks, which I love, was a flop. You know, Paradise Alley was a bomb. This you know, Rocky Two was a hit. Yeah. The only other non-Rocky success he would find, really up in, up through the nineties, you know, Cliffhanger, with a couple of you know arguable exceptions, were the Rambo films, which debuts he, this very year. Yes, yes. But even that first First Blood was, you know, that's a yes, it's an action picture, but it's not a larger than life action adventure spectacular. It's a survivalist drama. Yeah. And that was sort of his first non-Rocky hit. Uh, to a certain extent, you know, when you want to talk about the modern movie star, you know, Sylvester Stallone was someone that couldn't open an envelope outside of the Rocky and Rambo films pretty much from 1976 to 1993. And aside from a, you know, a few good years in the early 90s, Cliffhanger, Demolition Man, et cetera, et cetera, really couldn't open, you know, after that was basically almost box office poison outside of periodic Rocky and Rambo films, but he was still of value in those pictures. And, you know, by the time, you know, when, you know, Rambo two first Rambo first blood part two and Rocky four, they both made 300 million worldwide in a six month stretch. And, you know, Rambo came out Memorial day, 90, 85 Rocky four came out Thanksgiving, 85. Mm-hmm. They both made about, you know, Rambo made one fifty domestic Rocky four made one twenty eight domestic, which is, you know, the biggest of the Rocky films. You know, this is a time where star Wars is done. Batman's still a few years away. We've had no diehards, no lethal weapons. Terminator is just this cult movie that people kind of sort of like Stallone in. Right. Um, you know, Indiana Jones, he had two movies and maybe you're done. Ghostbusters is just one movie. You know, Beverly Hills Cop had one sequel and maybe you're done. So by default, you know, Rocky and Rambo are the biggest franchises in Hollywood, which means yeah. by default, Sylvester Stallone is the biggest movie star in Hollywood. Yeah. As far as the film, it's weird because I, you know, I, I saw this when I was a kid. And even before I knew why it bothered me, it bothered me that the film was basically about why Rocky Balboa, this rich white guy, deserved a second chance over a bunch of up and coming fighters, many of whom were black. Yeah. And it was like, OK, you had your shot. Why? Why? Why do you deserve to have your title back? But even so, even, you know, even before I was old enough to really understand it sort of bothered me the idea that they villainized Mr. T's character by having, you know, basically proposition Rocky's wife. Oh yeah, so, yeah. And again, it's 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 ringside talk. You know, it's 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 in context, whatever. But you know, even before I knew better, it sort of rubbed me as kind of iffy. I don't think the film is racist. If anything, I think it's it's refreshing how upfront the racism of Paulie's of Burt Young's character is, mm-hmm. so that he, of course, can be shot down and made. You know, not even not to see the light, just to be made a fool by Rocky, by Apollo Creed, and by the people around him. But there is a certain great white hope subtext in the film that I think the first two films were able to avoid, for better or worse. Right. I, Rocky Three is just—it's it's really interesting because it's in this gap where it is. I think there's a lot of Rocky Four praise that forget. See, that's like here with it. Like this is kind of forgotten but i think when people remember some of rocky four they're remembering a lot of this movie too 
And because uh, like I of the Tiger comes from this movie, not Rocky Four, even though it's played in Rocky Four. There's it's montage crazy yes. again. And I don't know, this one for me too, this is the one where it makes it act feel like it feels like Rocky's like an actual person in real life. Like it really makes him feel like a he is a a weird entity in pop culture where it feels like he actually existed somehow. And he really he doesn't. Uh, but the way Stallone sells him in, in this movie in particular, like there's the the you know, the statue that gets unveiled in this movie that really was there for a long time. Like it really there. Uh, the marching band plays the Rocky theme. So that theme exists in his world. It existed in ours. And there's advertisements that look just like genuine with yeah. uh, Stallone, the picture, like he did a really good job on the fake marketing stuff that exists in this movie. He took his appearance on the Muppet show, throws it in here. To make it like Rocky, it just he feels like a real person, all in a way that he felt like a he felt approachable and grounded in the first two films, but this one he feels like a real celebrity. This, and this is also one of the last times he. Well, that's not fair because I mean, it, it's. I mean, in comparison to Rocky Four and Five, he feels more like a three dimensional human being. Mm-hmm. I will say, obviously, things got better with Rocky Balboa and the Creed pictures. Yeah, and I, um, I, th- I think part of the charm of Rocky, it's funny because now Rocky has turned from, he was the idiot street prophet type guy that everybody's, okay, okay, always giving advice to now. He became the guy that we're like, well, well, we have to listen to him now. Like, you know, like he's <laughs> powerful. We have to, you know. Well, and you're absolutely right in the sense that he became more like Sylvester Stallone Yeah, in that he's intelligent, he's handsome, he's well-dressed. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not, you know, even in Rocky two, he's clearly not playing himself. Yeah. And he's clearly a character that isn't all that bright and it isn't necessarily obviously street smart, but he's not, you know, he's, he's, you know, he doesn't know proper, you know, he's not the kind of guy that would, you know, you'd have to teach him proper silverware manners. And, you know, right. Those, you know, uh, uh, Pygmalion type scenarios. Um, the baby you know, fat's he, he gone. Can't read, yeah. But he yeah. Can't oh read yeah. In part two. Right. Um, and again, that that's part of the. And one interesting about the Rocky character through all the entire films and onward is that he's one of the few really iconic cinematic characters who isn't defined by violence. Right. He's right. not. Yes, he boxes, but you know he's not trying to hurt somebody in the ring. He's just it's a it's a sport. And outside of the ring, he is a kind and sensitive and sensible and decent guy he is not an action hero and he's not a villain right you know he's not luke skywalker he's not travis pickle he's just a nice regular guy rocky movies are dramas they're not yeah they're action movies yeah and i think that's a huge reason why these films have stood the test of time and why they are still as popular as they are Mm -hmm. you know they are yes they're aspirational to a point but they are they do focus around blue collar characters that more or less, give or take Rocky four, three and four, remain relatable, you know, just like me kind of people. Right. And also who are, again, very nice and kind. And, you know, Rocky is a role model. Mm-hmm. Not just because, you know, he got the chance of a lifetime and went the distance with Apollo Creed. He's a nice guy. Yeah. He's a decent person. And I think when we think of the characters that have stood out as larger than life in cinema, again, you know, most of them are people who do violence either action heroes or action villains mm-hmm. or you know monsters or 
even something like you know certain comedies that have you know Bluto from Animal House. Right. You know, we can argue how problematic he is, but he's not. You know, even if he's not a villain, he's certainly not the hero. Yes. Um, he's not a role model, and I think that's something that's always set the Rocky films apart then and now. One hundred percent agree with with that. It's a Rocky's an interesting character because he's he's crafting a series. He's not, and it's a time where like the sequels were all slashers. They were um, Star Trek movies. There were, I don't know, it wasn't prestige at the time. And this is an Oscar picture that yes. is getting yeah, a, franchised a out. Picture winner that spawned an eight film fra- nine. Fra- I mean, eight film franchise. Eight film and. That would continue to garner nominations, yeah. Uh, even in its latter ones, so and you know, between you and me, I think Creed deserved a few more nominations than it got. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and it, it defies the odds as well because when he came back for Rocky Balboa, I was like, yeah, you're like, oh was, my gosh, and it was really it's good, and really then, good, yeah. It's the third best behind Rocky and Creed, yeah. And then Creed comes out, and then Creed Two, which sounded yeah. like a bad idea, winds yeah. up being like, oh, that was really good like wow you took that stupid premise and used that as a challenge to make a good movie out of it mm-hmm. the other thing about rocky 3 is that it's the plot that has most defined the rocky films in that yeah. the hero isn't quite prepared to take on a younger more brutal challenger and loses and then has to get their mojo back and then triumphs and yes. of course that get ripped off all the time everything from cars Dream to dark knight rises right um and, you know, it's, it's a popular trope for part threes, you know, Iron Man, uh, Star Trek Beyond to a certain extent, Logan, where you, or Thor Ragnarok, where you, you have the hero, you know, sort of lose everything that defines him in terms of their, his toys and his, his, his structural advantages. You know, it's, 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 you know, to use the obvious quote, you, know, you take away Iron Man's suit, what is Tony Stark? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, you know, that, that's, that's a good place to be in your third picture. Mm-hmm. And Rocky Three, by default of being one of the first threequels that wasn't a horror movie of the modern era, you know, sort of defined that. Right, right. And they try to mix it up. They give him a box. You know, he loses badly, but we also have that exhibition match with Hulk Hogan, Thunderlips. That's crazy. That does something wild and different. And gives us a usually. I mean, usually these have had what one boxing match. This has three in it. <laughs> And, you know, it allows Carl Weathers to play in a different sandbox. Yeah. To, to play a different, I mean, not a different character, but play different flavors. Uh, and the films, you know, the first two films, one of the reasons they work as well as they do is they don't, they never, ever villainize Apollo Creed. No. Even in the second, especially in the second film, where we can absolutely understand his resentment and his anger. At, you know, he won the fight, but he's still being treated by as a loser. Yeah. Yeah, Stallone's yeah. not a dummy. Like everybody looks through, yeah. they look at him thinking he's Rocky. He's an incredibly intelligent guy and a big he's film inc- nerd. And like, yeah, it's crazy. That doesn't always reflect it in the final product. I'll be honest. Yeah, to an extent that sometimes baffles me. Mm-hmm. But you know, listening to him talk, he knows his shit. Which is it's funny. I don't know if you if you watch the ninety minute making of documentary for the new cut of Rocky Four. But you know, I I I'll be honest. I'm not a huge fan of the Ivan versus Drago or Rocky versus Drago cut. I think right. the cut's better. But it's certainly interesting listening to him think about the process and the choices that he made. Even though I, you know, in the moment, I'm like that's wrong. Right. Like, Ooh, I disagree with that. But it's 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 he clearly knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's uh, undervalued, kind of, of 
the the Rocky series, which uh, Talia Shire, he always cedes to her. Like he always yes. has a strong thing, which surprises me when he has her pass in the storyline when he does Rocky Balboa. But I think he was using that as something that he needed Rocky to be on his own or like struggling to make his own decisions because if she's there, yes, he's fine. Well, he needed um, to be laid low because if yeah. they're happily married, then really, why is he doing this? Yeah, he yeah, and it's unfortunate, but he's right. You know, yeah, it's, it's... yeah, no, she's she's done up here. She's like a stone cold fox in this. So, but I yeah. always kind of thought Talia Shire was kind of cute, whatever. But even though, yeah, <laughs> even in the Godfather movies, uh, but um, she's a good actor too. That's that's the thing too. But, oh, nepotism! But no, she's actually worthy of, and she's oh, been yeah. a a very prolific producer as well um, throughout producing some pretty important movies, but yeah, she's always a strong suit here. They, they, you know, say farewell to Burgess Meredith here because what's Mickey going to do every film, you know, like that's, it makes sense. It's kind of like I talk about like, you know, know, a lot of people got angered in scream Two when they off Randy, but what was he going to do? Show up and say rules every fucking time. Like that was all he, like they knew something ahead of time. And they hit something at a peak and it was, it's brilliant, but there's some characters that like, I guess some people like people just doing the puppet tricks, party tricks every time, but if you're making some serious stuff, yeah, making some stuff progress along, then yeah, it's, it's natural. And you get a new flavor with Carl Weathers. It's a new dichotomy. It gets explored and dumped in the next one, but it's still there for later when they do Creed and Creed, the film, like because of how he portrays weather, how athletes were stuff, like it feels totally plausible that that could work. Yeah, and it's it's open there. You can see it in the personality of Carl Weathers. But yeah, like I, the Rocky Three is pretty pretty strong. It's a pretty good movement from the second one to jump. Like, hey, this is what happened to this guy when he gets huge and forgets his hunger. Like what it is. Like it's a it's very much you know there's the young and hungry versus the older and now comfortable in life. That's a universal theme with all like art, music, movies, like the hungry youth. Per- oh, his, his albums were better when back when the first few albums, cause they were young, they were, they were written in a time of desperation of like, I'm young. I have no money. I live out of a van, you know, like all those things. And then when you have get married, have kids and you're comfy, like where's the conflict? Where's the thing? The, well, it's like everyone wondering, you know, when are we going to see the return of that Eddie Murphy that made like three movies 40 years ago? Yeah. I mean, that was a moment in time. Yeah. And, you know, uh, he basically killed that persona in the Nate Professor. That's what that movie was about. Right. <laughs> yeah. He clearly would rather end, you know, I say this without criticism, you know, he he wanted to be the straight man, the reactor to chaos around him. And I think that's sort of the change that you see with certain comic actors when you say, oh, you know, they sold out or they weren't as edgy as were they. They sort of evolved from the creator of chaos to the re- the straight man to the chaos around them. You know, right. Adam Sandler is a good example where, you know, something like Billy Madison, where he's the instigator, mm-hmm. while something like, uh, you know, Big Daddy, where he, or Click, where he's reacting to the madness around him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing about Stallone is that you know he's a very good writer. Yeah, I know. If you, you know, I if if you're listening or watching this and you have not seen uh, Homefront, 
It's one oh, of Jason yeah. Statham's best action pictures. Right. Yeah. And he Stallone wrote it. I mean, I don't know if he wrote it a while ago for him to star, but he it's did not good. star in it. And he's it's got a killer cast. You know, uh, Winona Ryder, uh, James Franco, uh, 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 Kate Bosworth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Clancy Brown's in it. Clancy yeah, Brown? I think so. Yeah, that yeah. was a really good movie. Yeah. And it's just really, it's a, just a solid, solid picture that's just really well written and really well acted. And yeah, it's, I wish he, I wish he would write other people's movies more often. It's o- it's only weakness is comedy and him thinking he's a comedian. That's about it's Stallone's. <laughs> no, I like Oscar. Oscar is pretty darn good. Oh, I don't like Oscar. Fair um, enough. I'm out. I'll tap out. Demolition man's good. Yeah. Yeah. That I think is by default is, is, in, most intentionally funny movie. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in here in this early 80s, he does that uh, movie with Dolly Parton. Um, Rhinestone. Rhinestone. Rhinestone Cowboy? Yeah. yeah. That's the one. That's that that my mom will shoot where the ones are like, stop making comedies. Yep. You're not funny. Of them. He could he be three, funny. I like one of them. <laughs> yeah. He could be funny in comedies. He just yeah. needs to be the not be the one making the jokes. He needs. Yes. Yeah. That's the that's the thing. Um, and I guess that's part of why I enjoy Oscar is that to a certain extent he's reacting to the swarming, slamming doors farts going on. Gotcha. But whatever. I mean, you know, it's just, but you and uh, but you know what is no joke? Rocky Three's box office. This movie opened with twelve million dollars over its Friday to Sunday weekend. Sixteen million over Memorial Day weekend. Its Friday to Sunday number was the second biggest opening weekend ever for anything. Behind the fourteen point one million dollar December nineteen eighty one domestic debut of Superman two, wow! Uh, spoiler: the opening weekend record was going to fall very soon. Very soon. Very soon. So yeah, Rocky three sixteen million dollars on nine hundred and thirty nine screens. That's an incredible seventeen thousand fifty six seventeen thousand fifty six per theater average. I, I remember when. Fair 9-11 came out in summer mm-hmm. 2004. It opened to like 20 million, $22 million under 1,000 screens. Oh. And I remember that being like some kind of record in terms of an opening weekend for under 1,000 screens that had been previously set by Rocky III. Oh, wow. That doesn't seem right now. So if someone's watching this in, in three months, hopefully I'll have figured it out by then. <laughs> But anyway, it would it made sixteen million dollars and would go on to earn approximately one hundred and twenty five million dollars at the domestic box office, uh, as well as well. I don't have the overseas numbers here, but I think it was. I want to say it's a hundred, but I know it did. Very, I mean, it did very well worldwide. Hmm. Again, Stallone is one of those actors like Stallone, like Schwarzenegger, that was slightly ahead of the curve in terms of overseas box office appeal. Two hundred and seventy million worldwide on a huh. seventeen million dollar budget. Oh. Uh, so yeah, it was a massive, massive, massive hit. The first one did 117. The second one did 85. So this was actually an upswing from the from both of the previous pictures. It's behind ET and uh, holy shit, <laughs> uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which came out in 1981, made 190 million of its money in 1982. No, there's a. In a couple of weeks, a, we we have a re-release of it coming in a couple oh, weeks. Oh, okay, that and makes it, more sense. And spoiler, it tops the box office. That does not surprise me. The first movie ever to make $10 million in a single weekend was Star Wars in not remotely its opening weekend. Mm, okay. I think it was an opening weekend of a reissue. 
you know, it was behind uh, uh, films that actually came, new films of 82. It was behind, e, you know, spoiler, E.T., obviously. Tootsie, Officer and Gentleman, mm-hmm. which would come out in later this summer. Yep. And then Rocky Four, And behind, just behind Rocky Four, Porky's, which one of these days I need to watch. Because it comes up every week and I say, I need to watch Porky's. Porky's. I've never seen Porky's. I gotta watch that Porky's. Anyway, number two was Visiting Hours. They told you people went to see it. Yeah, it it did a halfway decent 15.2, excuse me, $5.25 million in opening weekend. And it would top out at a perfectly okay for the kind of movie this is, $12.5 million. (laughs) No, I mean, that was fun for what it was. Right. Uh, Conan the Barbarian would make 5.2 in its third Although it's, you know, the Friday, you were talking about Friday to Monday here. Mm-hmm. It's third weekend for a $28 million total on its way to a, a $40 million finish. Dead Men Don't Wear Played would go up over the multi- multi-day weekend with 4.6 on the way to a final total of uh, 18.2. And then Porky's. Porky's. Which, went, which, which added... 500 additional screens over Memorial Day weekend <laughs> and it's 11th weekend in theaters to earn $4.5 million. The juggernaut. 1,600 theaters. That's by far the most theaters for any movie this weekend. <laughs> I mean, you know, Conan was on 1,300 screens. Porky was on 1,600. Uh, that, that's, you know, Rocky Three opened on 939 screens. So this is an amazing, amazing performance. That frankly doesn't get talked about enough. No. And I may have to have a retrospective ready to go in that. When Porky's ruled the box office. Porky's was a titanic of its day. Yeah. Kind of. Not really. It's 40, turning 40 this year. It's yeah. relevant. There you go. It would end up with $109 million. Uh, Sword in the Stone. Sorcerer. Sorcerer. Not Disney. Sword in the Sorcerer. Sorry. Yes. Would make $2.6 million uh, for a $17 million end of six weekend total this movie's a solid hit i always thought it i always saw sword of the sorcerer as this like junky little b-movie but i'm like this thing's making some money here sticking around 36 million dollars which is frankly on par with excalibur and conan i absolutely agree with you that's not one that tends to be talked about in that same bubble like it's never it's just getting it's getting a uh well after when this airs it'll already have come out but it's getting a 4k ultra hd blu-ray release this year and it never got released on Blu-ray, even like it yeah. skipped that format. So, yeah, God, I that's another one. I, I think I saw it once many, 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 many years mm-hmm. ago, but I clearly need to watch it again because that's interesting to me. Uh, the War- Road Warrior would make two point four million its second weekend for a five point nine million total. Chariots of Fire would still be in the top ten with a one point seven million dollar weekend and for fifty six million total after thirty six weekends in theaters. And by this point, it had won the Best Picture Oscar for 1981. And rounding out the top 10, Fighting Back. Oh, yeah. that's right. Or Victor, back. Victor Victoria was nine. And then, yeah, oh, Fighting Back. Victor Victoria was nine, 1.5 for a $19 million total. And then Fighting Back dropping 25% despite the holiday weekend for a $3 million uh, 11-day total. That's, uh, yeah. And we're almost almost getting there to where everything's going to have at least made a million dollars over the weekend. We're uh, slowly getting to that. By next weekend. Yeah. The top uh, 10 will have all made at least a million dollars. There we go. Bulking up that summer summer cash. But yeah, interesting uh, round out here. The Chariots of Fire slowly falling out of the film top 10 and its musical top 10. It dropped like a rock once it hit number one. Yes. 
slight spoiler, it ends up number 11 next weekend. Chariots oh, Fire. goodbye. Chariots of yeah. Fire. But we got, we got some like, like known additions coming here the next oh, week. Oh, um, we do. But uh, that'll do it for this week. The first, uh, last weekend of May. Scott, uh, thank you for joining me. Before we sign out, let people know where they can keep up with you. Uh, Forbes. I write for Forbes. Please Google some variation of Scott Mendelson, the ticket booth and Forbes. I can be found at Twitter on at Scott Mendelson. And that's pretty much where you track me down. All right. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD, written work on YSOBlue.com. Scott, myself, and William Shatner are back <laughs> next week where you can hear your you can take your bets on who does the better con impression and who we believe directed poltergeist and all that <laughs> all that and some hanky panky as we continue on to the first weekend of june in the summer of 1982 but until then stay foam positive Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. Mm-hmm.